good afternoon, and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. My name is Aldona Vosch, and I am the interim president for IWP. For those of you who are new to IWP, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online masters of arts, and 18 certificates of graduate studies. If you are interested in learning more about us, please, you are welcome to ask any of the staff after this event. And also, after the conclusion, if you are still interested, please visit iwp.edu. To support the work of IWP, of IWP please visit iwp.edu donate. Before we begin this lecture, would you please take this opportunity to silence your electronic devices? Thank you. So today we will be hearing, hearing from Douglas McKinnon, who will discuss his best-selling book, The 56 Liberty Lessons from Those Who Risked All to Sign the Declaration of Independence Before They and the 4th of July are banned. Mr. McKinnon is a former White House and Pentagon official, bestseller author, and working with other former government officials currently to establish a foundation to preserve the history and protect the reputation of our founding fathers. He is a regular contributor to several major newspapers. And to date, he has published more than 600 columns in every major paper and has also made frequent appearances on Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. At this point, welcome. We are anxious to hear your presentation. So please. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, thank you, John, for having me. Ty, thank you so much for the friendship and, and inviting me here. Uh, I, I'll get right to it. It's one of these things for me, and some of you know this already. So for me, I grew up actually in abject poverty. So I grew up. Uh, homeless many times. So, so by the time I was 17 years of age, I'd been evicted from 34 homes uh, because unfortunately my parents were highly dysfunctional alcoholics. And, and so from those homes, many times I ended up living in cars with my brother and sister. And it was, but you know, sort of again, the, the cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it's one of those things where I learned an awful lot about life going through that experience. And, and it really was helpful for but then when I became about eight years of age, I asked myself, well, what kind of country am I living in? How could this happen to me? Then I realized ultimately I was living in the best country, the best country for me. Because from that background, I somehow, as Donna said, I, I became a writer in the White House. Uh, the writer in the White House is for President Ronald Reagan and, and President George H.W. Bush. I, was, I became a senior official at the Pentagon. I became director of communications for former Senator Bob Dole. I became a principal at arguably the two largest law firms in the world, author. I became a syndicated columnist, and it's like, who can do that? What country offers you that opportunity? And it was the United States of America that did that for me. Then you ask, you know, so well, who gets the credit for that? And, and I swear this is true. So for me, much of that credit went to our founding fathers reason I say that is because at about eight years of age, I became fascinated with the American Revolution. And so many times I would go to the library and grab a book. And then many times I would be reading that book by flashlight because our electricity had been turned off for non-payment. So I was just reading it. But I became inspired by their stories. And in Boston, if any of you have been there, we have something called the Freedom Trail, right? So the Freedom Trail is like the Yellow Brick Road, except in red bricks, right? And it goes all over to the Revolutionary War sites in Boston. And, and, you know, and those sites obviously honoring the sacrifice of the revolution of the founding fathers of, of those people in Boston. And for me, and maybe I was just a strange little kid, right? But for me, part of that, of going there was a mental escape to get away from my home life, to get away from the stress, to get away from the fighting. 
And so I would go there as often as I could and walk that freedom trail. And, and, and it meant something to me because those stories all of a sudden at 8, 9, 10 started speaking to me. And I didn't have any adult supervision per se because of the life I led. And so the examples that I took at that young age, the examples of work ethic, responsibility, courage, empathy from the founding fathers that were, that were there. And, and that meant something to me, so I became more and more fascinated with those gentlemen. And, again, and one of the things now, of course, the world we live in, uh, we're, we're sort of being, you know, more and more, they don't want us to even say founding fathers. But the, the reality is, again, you know, that they were men at that point. But I have a, a chapter in the book, too, which, talk, which, which talks to the, the manufacturing mothers, too, because, again, there's no way back then you know, common sense dictates that you know, our founding fathers were wives, their girlfriends, their sisters, getting a lot of great you know feedback from them as well. But the reality was that the world predominantly was controlled by men back then. So for me, it was always about those examples were sometimes what kept me going as a young child because I was able to lean on that in terms of morals and conviction and principles. And so then flash ahead from that childhood, my existence, to July 4th of last year. Just last year, and I was just getting ready to write a column about the 4th of July, about the Founding Fathers, and I took a spin through some of the cable networks and some of the, some of the uh, news sites that were out there. And on the 4th of July, I saw multiple examples of people calling for the cancellation of the Founding Fathers, and for and more than that, for as you, you already know, for sandblasting the names off of various universities and buildings, tearing down their statues, removing their statues, I think over the last two weeks, maybe changing the name of the Washington University here, Washington. And for me, it was horrifying to hear that on the birthday of our nation, about talking about getting, and, and again, what I have said in, in the past and in, in the recent columns, if anybody thinks that that's not possible, they haven't been paying attention to what's going on in the United States for the last few years. And for me, it's one of these things where this is our shared American history. So, again, if it's bad, you know, let us condemn it and learn from it. If it's good, let us praise it and try to replicate the good. But let us never get together cancel our shared American history. It's one of these things where I'm, I'm just amazed that more and more people are not getting out there and talking about that because it's one of these things where it is growing by the day. It is a possibility. There are all kinds of things that are happening. And, it, and it's, it's one of these things where we need more voices out there. So the reason, so once that happened, literally on the 4th of July of last year, I picked up the phone and I called my publisher, and, and over just a five-minute conversation, I explained what I just saw on these various outlets and what I read in, in some of the various news sites, and he agreed over the phone, let's just get the book done and let's do it. And so on the 4th of July of last year, on that very day, I started writing the book. And for me, it was about just trying to get the message out there, not only about not canceling our shared American history, which to me is just beyond insane, but about trying to, in a way, educate our young people about these 56 men, really 57, if you, you want know, to call Robert Livingston, if you get the credit he deserves, but we can talk about that later. But, but for the 56, because unfortunately now, there's a good case to be made that they don't really teach American history in schools anymore. And, and what they do teach is, unfortunately, as, as we've also seen, you know, whether it's Thomas Jefferson and taking his name, out of the University of Virginia, taking his name away from William and Mary, institutions that he helped to create, is it, that they are, it's, it's taught that it's a shameful period in our history. Of American history is a shameful period as opposed to being the most wonderful time of this country because it was the genius of these men that this republic that gave us the United States of America. And, and so I just sat down and, and started writing this piece, but again, but not, not just writing that, but trying to talk to the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, because most, we're talking about it up still, it's just most people don't realize, especially most young people, that when these 56 men 
sign that document. They were signing their death warrants, and every single one of them knew it. And that's why, by the way, it took a little bit longer than you would suspect to sign it, because the only person that actually signed that document on the 4th of July of 1776 was John Hancock. And, and everybody else signed, most, most of the founding fathers, the 56, signed it around August 2nd. But then it, it took some all the way up until November of that year to sign it. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons was because they were trying to get their affairs in order. They were trying to prepare themselves for death because they knew the crown was going to come for them. And, and by the way, and as I'm sure all of you know, they paid a severe price. So many of the founding fathers of the 56 had their homes burned down to the ground, had their cattle slaughtered had everything they had taken from them, had their wives arrested, their wives sexually abused, their children murdered before them. And, and people tend to forget that, and this was such an amazing act of courage for these 56 men to do that. And so for me, when you start hearing about only one side, and this is one of these things we talk, and it's not a political issue for me per se, but I do believe that over the course of the last 50 or 60 years, and maybe you know you agree or disagree, but it's one of these things where we've sort of conservatives, libertarians, people of faith have ceded the five major megaphones of our nation to the left. And again, nature hates a vacuum. So if no one's going to jump in, you know, the, you know, the left jumps in and then they take over these institutions. For the last 50 years, you're looking at the media, entertainment, academia. Then you can make a, a really good argument for the last 10 years or so science and medicine as well. And it's one of these things where, you know, I believe strongly in, in the Man in the Arena speech by Teddy Roosevelt, you know, that he gave in 1910, and it's about the credit goes to the person in the arena that's willing to jump in and get dirty and bloody and, and, and fight the fight and get up and fight again. And sort of people that believe in this country, that believe in these 56 men, that believe in the vision and the genius they created, you know, more and more of us have to try to jump into that arena and have this argument. And again, and not in a bad way too, but just to get our voices out there and to, and to especially let young people know that there's more than one side to this story. That again, you know, these were amazingly courageous human beings that put, literally put everything on the line to create this nation. And, and it's not a shameful period of our lives. It's one of the most brilliant times, obviously, of the creation of this country. And so, you know, I, I was able to do that, but, and it's one of those things too, where, you know, one of the editors at my publisher was saying, well, this is a little bit like common sense and Thomas Paine, what you're doing. And, you know, I appreciate the, you know, that, that comparison, it's, it's a great exaggeration, but, but there is a tiny bit of that, which is true. And again, and that's one of the things that I don't believe is taught in our schools anymore too, is that when Thomas, Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, was not the most successful person in the world, right? He was struggling and wandering all the way up until 37 years of age. He did not do very well in life. He had more failures than successes. But he had established when Benjamin Franklin was in London a good relationship with Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin encouraged him to come to the colonies, to come to Philadelphia. Because what Franklin saw in, in Thomas Paine was a skill to talk to the everyman because Thomas Paine was the everyman. He was the people that, that you know, had their throats under the boot of the crown, be it in London or be it in the colonies. And Thomas Paine had a gift to speak to everyone. Thomas Jefferson said that Thomas Paine may have been the best writer in the revolution, in the history of the revolution. So when Thomas Paine sat down and wrote Common Sense, which was a 47-page pamphlet, uh, it, it spread like wildfire across the colonies. Ty and I were talking about it earlier. As people forget again, or it's not taught, is that in the colonies in 1776, you were talking about maybe 2.5 million people living there. Of those 2.5 million people, 500,000 either bought or died. Some of it, they bought it, some of it, they got it from a pirated version, common sense. And so what Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were talking about was that little pamphlet put so much pressure on them to do something, because to use their skill set, because again, 
It's very, very difficult when you're in a position of comfort to take a risk. Why do you want to do it? Most of the people of wealth in the colonies were loyalists. Why? Because for the same reasons today. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't want to lose their money. They didn't want to have their children affected. And so then all the more reason why these 56 men were so graceful because they went against the grain of the wealthy, of the elites. Not all of 56 were elites, but many of them were. And so when Thomas Paine put up that, that pamphlet, it galvanized these 56 men and other founding fathers to, to actually do something. And you know, and so that part of it to me was what was so inspirational because again, it was someone that, and a little bit like me, you know, that sort of came from the wrong side of the tracks, had a little bit of a skill to write to tell a story, and through encouragement of you know Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and, and others, he was able to tell that story and make a huge difference. And so this book, The 56 Now, I, I just wanted to act as a little bit of a, of, of a red flag, of, of a warning signal for all of us that our rights are disappearing before our eyes. And again, it's one of these things where we can have civil debate, and we, we can get back into this game, we can talk about it. But it's also, you know, what I want to say too is, is there were some, hopefully, some really fun parts of the book too. It's, it's, it's not, a, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic per se, and so I'm not a historian. But then I will say my experience over the last 20 years as someone that knows the media pretty well is that the vast majority of historians that are on the networks now tend to favor one political party over the other, where I tend to believe historians should favor no political party over the other. Historians should favor the truth and history, and, and that's not always the case. And so for me, I'm trying to also tell this story in a little bit of a fun and, and light way. And so in that vein, so, and this may be sacrilege to uh, real historians and real academics, but with John, with John Hancock, for instance, I actually compare him a little bit to Batman. And so, and then with Benjamin Franklin, for instance, if you remember the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, I compare <coughs> Benjamin Franklin a little bit to that character. And so the John Hancock comparison to Batman is John Hancock was, you know, he was adopted by his uncle and, and his wife when his parents, when he lost his parents at four years of age. His parent, his, his uncle Thomas, was arguably the wealthiest person in Boston and maybe one of the, the wealthiest person in the colonies. And so when Hancock came of age and then when his uncle Thomas passed, when Hancock was 26 years of age, he became, if not the wealthiest person in the colonies, one of the wealthiest. And he was seen as a socialite and a bonjour, somebody that wasn't taking life too seriously. But, like Batman, that wasn't the case. Because behind the scenes and at night, Hancock was nonstop working to change this country for the better. And he was working, he was one of the major funders of the Sons of Liberty. His mentor was actually Samuel Adams, who was, if anybody does remember American history, and it's not about the beer, it's about that Samuel Adams was a big time troublemaker and he had no trouble uh, making sure that the crown knew he was a big time troublemaker. Uh, and so it was one, so just to see what, what Hancock was doing behind the scenes. And also, by the way, John Hancock was a very serious person who actually wanted to be the commander of the colonial army and he, he lobbied for it nonstop and, and, and ultimately it went to George Washington. And that was a, a personal blow to Hancock, but he never lost faith in the country. And again, he did so much behind the scenes. And then going back to Benjamin Franklin and my comparison, which is only a little bit in the chapter, it's not much, but to the, to the uh, character in Back to School, Benjamin Franklin believed in higher education, and he loved it, and he certainly supported it later in life, but he was not educated formally himself. He, he went to the School of Hard Knocks, much like the character Rodney Dangerfield played in Back to School, where if you, if anybody saw that movie, at one point, you have the very pretentious professor, economics professor, telling the class how to start a business. And then all of a sudden, Rodney Dangerfield's character says, yo, 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 professor, wait a minute, you forget about a whole bunch of stuff. And the professor's like, what? And he goes, you better bribe the mate. You better bribe, you better grease the unions. And all of a sudden, the entire class is turning towards his, talk, sorry, is turning towards his character and taking notes of Rodney Dangerfield's character as opposed to the professor. And in many ways, 
that wasn't exactly what Benjamin Franklin was doing. Because again, Benjamin Franklin was a remarkable human being who that when he left Boston, my hometown, at 17 years of age, because he had a disagreement falling out with his brother James, he went to New York in search of a job with no education, no contracts, he couldn't find anything there. So he heard that it was an opportunity, just heard it was an opportunity in Philadelphia. And with one dollar in his pocket, he literally walked from New York City to Philadelphia, got a job there, and never looked back. And that's one of these things. And again, the reason he succeeded was because he had an amazing mind. He, I suspect his IQ was actually very, very high, but he was just not formally educated. But there was almost, his mind was like a sponge. And it was one of these things where he just could not learn enough, and he could not try to give back. Non-stop because of what he was doing, and, and again, so you know there were there's a number of light moments, and then people were asking me too, you know, when you write a book like this, you know, do you learn something that you didn't know before? And I learned a lot of things I didn't know before. But one of the cool things is my family, both sides of my family come from Scotland, and so uh, Joseph Hughes, who was one of the one of the fifty-six, one of the founding fathers, he was from. Eventually, he had settled in North Carolina. And Joseph Hughes became what was really, he was the head of the, the Naval Committee, so which is really our first Secretary of the Navy, right? And so he, be, he became the number one advocate for John Paul Jones. Okay, so John Paul Jones, famous quote, so I have not yet begun to fight. So John Paul Jones comes from Scotland, okay? And I didn't know this, maybe you guys do, and, and more power to you, but I did not. So John Paul Jones became a highly experienced Seaman at about 13 years of age, and by the time he was 20, off the coast of Scotland, he was already a captain at 20 years of age. But then there was a mutiny on his ship, and so he didn't want to do anything. But the lead mutineer came to kill John Paul Jones, and he ran him through with a sword. And so then John Paul Jones realized, well, this guy's family is actually very important in Scotland, so maybe I'm not going to get a fair trial in the Admiralty Court in Scotland. So he had a brother in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So John Paul Jones just snuck on the next ship going to the colonies and went down to meet his brother in Virginia. And so what I didn't know is so that John Paul Jones, his last name wasn't even Jones. Okay, I don't know if you guys knew that, great. Right? I did not know that. It was really fun to learn. He just he made up the name as a way to give him another layer of protection from Johnny Law coming to arrest him. And then John Paul Jones became you know, arguably the greatest naval fighter in the history of, of, of the revolution. As one of these things, too, where he was an amazing guy because he was very dapper, he, he was very stylish, he was considered a ladies' man back then. And then, interestingly enough, after the war, uh, when, when, and, and he, had, he was amazingly, incredibly successful in, in terms of sinking British vessels. The first time he did it, I think he sunk 16 on his first engagement off the coast of Nova Scotia. Is <coughs> Catherine the Great heard about him, and this Catherine the Great decided to make him an admiral in her navy. Now, why didn't he stay there that long? Well, because it turns out that maybe John Paul Jones was also snuggling with Catherine the Great at night. And her brother really didn't like that and was creating real tension for John Paul Jones, who decided to hightail it out of you know, Russia at the time and, and ended up in Paris and, and, and met his demise there. But it's one of these things, so it's, it's the stories beneath the stories that to me are really fascinating. But it's so, and again, and it's one of these things where I wish this subject was, was taught more readily in a more honest way in our schools because, again, you see so many fascinating people. And, but the common theme of all of them was, number one, they were fighting tyranny. Okay? And then they ultimately knew, again, that if they did not get together and fight tyranny, that ultimately they would all die or be crushed or imprisoned by it. And that's why they decided, against all odds, to stand up to the crown. And, and again, and, and so with, with the risk we talked about, and with the, with the severe punishment that they went through, and, and it's one of these things where I do think in the United States of America, and I've talked about this and I've written about it in the past, is things changed for the worse on one side of the political aisle in June of 2015. And what happened in June of 2015 was Donald Trump came down an escalator. 
at Trump Tower and announced he was going to run for President of the United States. And unfortunately, more and more people just sort of lost their mind over that. And some of them have not recovered their mind since. And again, the United States of America, what we stand for, cannot be about one person, cannot be about one man, cannot be about hating one man, cannot be about loving one man. It has to be about what are the guiding principles of the United States of America. And again, for, it, it, forget Republicans, forget Democrats, forget liberals, forget conservatives. What, what these 56 men talked about, what they believed in, was common sense, pragmatic solutions for the people of the colonies. And, and that hasn't changed, okay? We're, we're 250 years later, but that never changes. And what are the pragmatic, common sense solutions that we can put forward? And, and as we were talking about upstairs, it's, it's unfortunately more and more people are just nervous about talking about it. They're fearful to talk about it. They're fearful to get their voice out there. I've gotten, you know, I, I don't tell my wife too much, but I've gotten more than my fear of death, death threats over the years. And it's one of the, it sort of comes with the territory, but I believe I have a few skill sets to tell some stories. And I believe, again, as we talked about also, you know, I know it's a cliche, but if not us, who? If not now, when? And, and again, we're at a tipping point in the United States of America. And again, what, what I try to say in the book is that these 56 men left us a blueprint. It's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. We don't. The wheel's there. We just have to dig through some information to see it again, to, to learn the lessons again. And it's one of these things, too, where every single day, as I watch the news, it gets a little bit more surreal. Last week, some of you may know, and I, and I knew him, so there was Fox News, the former chief, uh, political correspondent was named Kyle Cameron. When I was with Bob Dole, I was Bob Dole's director of communications. When I was with Bob Dole, I dealt with Carl all the time. Really nice guy, really professional. I, I never knew what political party he was. I didn't know if he had a political opinion, and I didn't care. Okay, I just always had a great relationship with Carl. And then out of the blue last week, Carl was saying or intimating that President Biden should create a list, an enemies list, of people spreading misinformation. And the people on that enemies list should be in prison. And he was only talking about one side of the aisle. He was only intimating that Republicans were spreading misinformation. And again, if that's not chilling to everyone here, anyone listening, then you're not paying attention. Because again, once you have people advocating for the President of the United States, and someone, by the way, you know, Carl, again, as far as I know, he's still a good person, but I do think that people sort of, again, lost their minds with the election of Trump, and sometimes they haven't gotten it back. But when you start talking about creating an enemies list, openly like that, with someone that has that background, that has those connections, and, 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 and I was amazed that it just went up there. And almost nobody talked about it, almost nobody challenged it, almost nobody seemed bothered by it. And I'm like, okay, well, I think that's something that we ought to talk about. And again, that's something, you know, obviously that I think the 56 were aware because they were on an enemy's list every single day of their lives. And so I just felt important that I, I write this book, I try to get it out there. And so Donna said, as Ambassador said, I'm trying to work with two friends who are who government officials to try to create a foundation to not only protect the history of these men, but also to protect their reputations and their names. Because again, at some point, we cannot let them disappear. And if certain people in our country have their way, it's going to happen. And again, for me, it's about if it's our shared history, it's our shared history. And we should, again, if it's bad, let's condemn it. If it's good, let's build upon it. But let's not ever cancel it. And again, as Americans, you know, someone who has a different opinion from me, it's not my enemy. It's just an American who has a different opinion at that time. And again, and if we don't start talking to each other again as Americans, this country is in deep trouble because ultimately what's happening is the suicide of this nation. And again, if people do not see that, they're not paying attention. And if you look at the way the situation is now, if you look just one decade from now, I don't know that this country is going to survive in the form it is now because people just have to get more involved in their lives with their children, their laws, their school boards, you know, their you know, their city councils, everything. And again, historically, Democrats are really good at that, Republicans are less so. It's not about Democrats, Republicans. So again, it goes back to 
pragmatic common sense solutions for pragmatic common sense people. And, and ultimately, the, the takeaway for the 56 of this book is we have to get back to that. These 56 men didn't leave a blueprint, and we just have to realize that it's out there. Thank you very much. We we'll certainly have uh, enough time right now for questions, so perhaps we can start with the questions uh, from the audience. Michael. Michael. Thank you for doing this. My, my pleasure. Good for you. Um, as you know, 39 signed the Constitution, but there were 55 delegates. Mm -hmm. Some like George Mason didn't for various reasons. How? Um, I know that Caesar Rodney broke a tie in Delaware, but how many actually could have signed of the 56? Is that so that was one. That was one of the interesting things too, and, and it's one I'm glad you brought that up, Michael. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Also, is I sort of the first the first seven names in the book I inverted because I think those are the first seven that are the most deserve the most credit for the creation of the Declaration of Independence. And one of them speaks to exactly the issue you're, you're talking about, which is Richard Henry Lee, because Richard Henry Lee, I believe would have been the Thomas Jefferson of our time, because he was actually the driving force behind all of this. But then what happened, and by the way, he was, he was going to be, you know, the, you know, head of the committee to draft the Constitution. He was, going to, he was going to be the person that was going to draft the Constitution, I'm sorry, the Declaration of Independence. And then what happened was literally the day before he was about to be appointed, his wife was going to be ill, and he had to go home. And he said, do not stop the process. And so Thomas Jefferson stepped in to take that. But also to your point, Michael, so Richard Henry Lee was a, was a very interesting guy because he, he was a strong anti-federalist, right? And it was one of these things where he did not trust large government. He felt we just fought a revolution or we're in the middle of fighting a revolution against large government. And now for some of us, and so he had obviously some really heated arguments with some of his fellow signers over, over the fact that they wanted to be federalists as opposed to, he felt obviously the power should be more with the people and ultimately with the states. And that was, in that, so to your point, Michael, that there was a, a debate that was going on nonstop among those signers and also among so many people. But, but to the point, Richard Henry Lee just never, ever gave up that fight. And, and, you know, and, and it's, it's really, it's amazing. And I, I just, one of the things I hope comes from this book is that Richard Henry Lee, Henry Lee gets more credit because I do believe he ultimately was the driving force behind the Declaration and was the person, the driving force behind the Bill of Rights, by the way, too. Because he was the one that pushed more than anybody. Then the Bill of Rights, of course, is just ultimately the first 10 amendments to, to the Constitution. And it was Richard Henry Lee that would not drop that issue no matter what. And again, he, he's, he was truly a heroic figure. So. But of the 56, were there more that didn't sign us? I believe, yes. I don't have the names, okay. but what they were. Again, part of it was that exact issue because of you know federalism versus non-federalism. And, and again, that was a raging debate back then. And I'm, I was always, honestly, as you know, someone who's not a professional historian, but I was surprised. I, I certainly would have been an anti-federalist if I were in their position because I would just say, we just spent all this blood and treasure fighting against the crown, which is the ultimate, you know, federalist society, so to speak, in terms of what they were going against. And why would you then endorse something like that, replicate that in the new United States of America? And so that, and again, so that was, again, I would have liked to have been a fly in the wall for some of those arguments. Yeah, some questions from the audience. And what hot? So nice to see a gentleman here. Dorchester. Um, and they were very happy for a very long time. And there's always this legend in Massachusetts that uh, what they would do is call the Sons of Liberty to fill all this mess. I mean, it's a legend, but I'm just wondering would that group ever be reconstituted and under what conditions? And I mean, is it ever possible? Not that I would want that. I'm just simply saying is it was such an active group for so long, right. the vigilante group, that I don't know if there would be circumstances that would be Well, so again, it's funny that you say that in the last sort of chapter of this book, I say in the sense that it, it is a time for a new Sons of Liberty to be reborn. 
but more in a civil disobedience, non-violent way. Because, and, and to answer your question, I believe it should be, and I, and I think the time has come, only in the sense that, yeah, the Sons of Liberty, which, again, John Hancock was funding and Samuel Adams was certainly the, the mastermind behind that group, you know, they, they created civil disobedience and maybe they crossed the line here and there to, to intimidate some of the local officials. Because, again, remember, most of the local officials and most of the wealthy were loyalists to the crown. And, and so these guys were trying to figure out how to move them away from that position. And did they cross some lines they shouldn't have crossed? Yes, but ultimately, and the Sons of Liberty also spread across the colonies. The chapters of the Sons of Liberty were everywhere in the 13 colonies because ultimately people, common people, which was, again, 98% of the colonists, did not feel that the, their leaders, quote unquote, had their best interests at heart. And how can we change that dynamic and the Sons of Liberty were offering them a way, again, not always the best way, but a way to try to change that argument, to try to change that dynamic. And so what I say in the last chapter of the book is, I think there is a, a need for a new Sons of Liberty, a peaceful, nonviolent Sons of Liberty, that make their voices heard. Because again, again I keep saying it, I know it's a cliche, but if not now, when, right? And, and this, we're, in, we're in big trouble. Doug, the, uh, what was the interaction between uh, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin? Uh, I've recently seen a PBS uh, show, Two Hours on Franklin, and uh, it seemed like he felt a little bit eclipsed in, in his mind as the revolution went on as the chief diplomat bringing France in. Washington was the chief uh, of uh, the army and the and intelligence. Did they, uh, I guess they didn't see each other much, of course, over many years. Uh, I guess Franklin made the eight trips back and forth across the land, which was fairly dangerous when you're older. And well, I was there. We're talking in the book, I mentioned some of the uh, 56 that didn't make it all the way across, too, you know, just taking that journey. Uh, did Washington uh, later and, and Franklin have a year, year before the Declaration of Independence, were they pretty much in? And boots and working together during the course of it, uh, certain private communications, and then after, what would, how would you kind of characterize your, your interactions? With uh, I think they had a, you know, this my my reading of it. I, I tried to read everything I could get my hands on. They had a very cordial working relationship. It was one of those things, and I, and I think also, and I didn't see the, the PBS special, but I, you know, I, I think Benjamin Franklin. At this point, he was the oldest signer of the Declaration of Independence, also at, at, at 70 years of age. Was, he was really, at that time, at peace with who he was and what his responsibilities were. He felt like, at that age, with the experience he had, he wanted to give back to the nation. So he, he, he as far as I, as much as I've read about him, he did not ever feel like he was in competition with George Washington. You know, all the opposite in many ways. You know, he, he felt that George Washington had the skill set to do what he did. And again, John Hancock, again, may disagree with that because John Hancock wanted that job. But John Hancock ended up leading some very large militias, including some 5,000 person militias on his own. But it's one of those things where they had a respectful relationship. And I don't think either man ever felt threatened by the other. So, because again, because Franklin, had, by the time he was at that place in his life, he had done so much, and it, and it become fairly successful, especially very successful in those terms. And he just wanted, with the time he had left, which was longer than he thought, was to, was to get back to the nation, you know, the new nation. I mentioned some of them didn't make uh, across. Just curious about um, that and how much the book gets into their, their death, right? We, we, we know these 56 people as a group, the Founding Fathers. Most Americans probably couldn't name more than three or four of them right. at this point anymore. Um, but there's also the, these men, as they reach the end of their lives over the subsequent decades, um, how was their death? Were, there, were their deaths greeted? Were they all seen as heroes? Did any of them die in obscurity? Well, that's a great question. It's because, again, so many of them, uh, I think ultimately four of the 56 signers actually ended up in debtor's prison 
for instance, okay? And, and, and you would just think, okay, wait a minute. In the United States. In the United States. That these gentlemen yeah. just created this nation, and you can't forgive their debt. If you, if it, and then, of course, it was, it was arguments whether it was legitimate, not legitimate, that they really owe the money, they're not owe the money. But it's one of those things when you see that, and then you see, you know, the, the youngest signer passed away at, 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 at 26 years of age. And it's one of these things, too. A lot of them, again, and as we said, a lot of them paid a severe price for signing the Declaration of Independence, and the Crown came off of them very heavily. But again, and then most of them, many of them after that, when, when, when the, the war was over, they never recovered their money. They sort of never recovered it. They lost everything, and, and some of them became mentally lost because of that, because it was so traumatic, the sacrifice they made, that they could never quite fit back into society. Were they formally mourned by Congress as these guys, as they passed? Well, it was interesting, too. So Thomas Jefferson, at the end, when also because Jefferson became fairly destitute towards the end of his life. And so it was where Congress was worried about that. And they wanted to make sure that Jefferson had enough money to sort of take care of his family. And so as you do know, and, and, and others may, so they, the, the Library of Congress was really created around Jefferson's library. So that what they wanted to do to help him out in that instance was to buy his library, give him enough money for him and his family to survive in Monticello. And that was actually the creation of the Library of Congress with, with, with his library to begin with. So it's one of these things where they, but unfortunately, they, they got almost no recognition. Over over time, you know, you know, as you know, sort of a hundred years afterwards, people, more and more people then started paying attention to these contributions. But it's one of those things where some of them were not treated very well, even though they were one of the fifty-six signers. I mean, it's, it's really to me, it, it, it's just you know, mind-boggling that that was the reality. Do we have any other questions? And do we have any poll questions? I guess current day, uh, uh, in the New Hampshire public school system where I was from, at least in the 70s, uh, I, I remember vividly the founding fathers who presented as heroes who learned about the Declaration of Independence, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think it, the, I guess the left has been so effective in relatively a short amount of time to defrock these heroes? Right. And it, Know, pretend to expose them as villains. Yeah. Well, again, speaking of New Hampshire, just so you know, of the, of the thirty of the thirty-four places I lived by the time I was seventeen, three of them were in New Hampshire, Crosstown, New Boston, and Manchester. So I know New Hampshire really well too, and uh, love the state. Uh, and, and the answer is to go back to getting involved at the local level. Years ago, I worked on on uh, George H. W. Bush's campaign, Vice President Bush's campaign. And Mike Reno. So I worked with a gentleman who's kind of vilified now, but he was actually a very nice person in many ways. It was Lee Atwater. So was a campaign manager for then Vice President Bush, George H. W. Bush. And what Lee always said to me back then, or down the street, is that Republicans then, and I don't think it's changed so much now, is that Republicans all wanted to instantly be elected to be a senator or governor. Right? Nobody wanted to start at the bottom. Nobody wanted to be on the school board, the local, the local county council. Nobody wanted to work their way up. And the Democrats are very, very good at that. And one of the things that Lee and I talked about way back then, too, in 1987, 88, was also in terms of whether it's New Hampshire, whether it's the federal government, is Democrats tend to, when a when president gets elected, as you all know, and I, I, again, I got to work in the White House for two presidents, and I work on three-wing presidential campaigns, is you get, I don't know the exact number, but approximately 4,000 political appointees, right, come into Washington. Most Republican, when it's a Republican president, almost all of them leave government and go into the private sector because they want to do something in the private sector. Whereas a vast, a very, very large number of Democrats, whether it's, as I say, the Clinton White House, the Obama White House, doesn't matter. They tend to stay in government. You, you, there's an opportunity where you can career in when you're in when you're a political appointee. They give you a window to career in if you want to. And Republicans, at least in the past, have tended not to do that again because they wanted to go out in the private sector and try to be as successful as possible, which is wonderful. But then you also have to remember that those bureaucrats 
control so much, not only in Washington, D.C. and the federal government, but then you look at the, at the local levels, whether it's Manchester, whether it's any place in the country. And again, it, where it's the obligation, if it's your life, if it's your, if it's your children's lives, if it's your children's future, don't you have an obligation to try to figure out how to get involved in that? And again, for me, because of the way I grew up, I, I decided, you know, the biggest game in town that controlled my life, that, that dealt with the poverty I went through, was, was government. And how I wanted to learn as much about it as possible so I could hopefully try to get in and, and make a change. And what I talk about in the book is like, if you look at poverty, no one's ever going to solve poverty on a macro level. It just doesn't happen. You've seen it time and time again. But we all have the ability to help with poverty on a micro level. I mean, we all know someone. A friend, a neighbor, a work colleague, someone down the street going through tough times. And we can help that person, and many of us do. And so the same thing then, I believe, and what I talk about in the 56, the same thing goes what's going on now. And, and, and unless and until they imprison us, unless and until they take our lives, we have the ability, we have our voices, we can speak, we can spread the message, we can talk to other Americans, we can try to sort of be mini Paul Revere's, right? To just Create a little bit of a wake-up call. Because again, and it can be in the church, it can be at the bowling league, it can be at the kitchen table, it can be across the fence. It doesn't matter, but we have to start having that conversation in a more real way. And again, and it's not about Republican versus Democrat, you know, it, it's about there are pragmatic common sense solutions that are being ignored, and because they are, again, ultimately it's it's our children and grandchildren that are gonna pay a severe price for not getting involved. Uh, did you tell us about the spread of the word that the Declaration of Independence had been signed? Well, again, it was one, one of those in terms of afterwards. Well, it was it was it was celebrated, obviously, you know, and it was one of those things too, which, which is also great. And we talked about that with common sense because everything then was obviously word of mouth too. And it was one of those things where so many people in the colonies did not know. That it had happened, obviously. And it was one of those things where how do you do that? How do you get the message across? How do you spread it? And, and then how do you create events in, in, in the small, small cities then and let the word go forth? And, and, what, and it was one of those things where it was a very organic process to let people know. And again, and, and what was amazing too was the pride factor of the colonists when they found out that in fact it had been signed. I mean, it was one of these things where. Again, obviously, it was the greatest document in their lives. I believe it's the greatest document in our lives. But it was one of those things, again, where you know, it, it deserved to be celebrated. It should have been celebrated. And it, and, it, and it happened in a very slow, organic way. And then the reverse of that is it, it is disappearing before our eyes in, in a, in a not-so-slow, organic way because you know it's a, we're allowing it to, to happen. And that's one of those things where we have to step up and well, thank you. For, for me, after reading your book, what was really striking is uh, it just kept repeating every founding father was either an orphan or came from obscene wealth, either an orphan or obscene wealth. And yet, what brought them together, most of them had suffered tragedies in their lives. Uh, either their parents had passed away when they were very young, their wives seemed to be passing away when they're very young, almost all of them saw their children die, and that was in one way part of the time period that they lived, mm -hmm. which we don't teach any longer and we forget about, the, the human suffering of an individual just to try to get through life. And then you look at the contrast of the poor orphan and obscenely wealthy inherited wealth of our founding fathers, because there was only one team or the other, none in the middle. But yet, they all had the same characteristic. They had courage. And their courage was all for liberty. And every single one of them, you just kept seeing and feeling and experiencing their courage. They knew, as you had mentioned, there was a death sentence. And just about every single one of them, after signing that document, was 
almost the walking dead and their family. And they went, they were tortured, they were starved, they were put in prison, their wives were raped, their children were killed. I mean, it is an amazing thing to realize that these men, these human beings, have enough courage to ensure that we are still here. And it's up to us to ensure that we are continue to fight for freedom and liberty. So I thank you for writing this book. And thank you, and with that, before we, before we go, I, I did want to one more time and thank you and to thank all of you, and and um, thank whoever is with us that we can't identify right now. We still have one more question. Yes, one last question. Of course. Um, my name is Cosmos, and uh, I live in France. I'm a former international traveler. I traveled through 50 countries alone, and uh, when I met America, country that give as you say a lot of opportunities that the other country don't do. And I observe a lot uh, in international politics and I am uh, advocating for human rights, also for the uh, United Nations. And I would like to ask you because I observe a lot and uh, I observe that a lot of now political leaders don't respect the few articles from the constitution. So do you think that this constitution that originally were formed like building America is gonna die and then we will make others. Yeah, so, <clears throat> I mean I don't think it will ever die in that sense unless we let it. And one of the things that's interesting too with, with regard to your experience and something that we've talked about before is what I've noticed is a lot of Americans who are naturalized citizens who came from other countries, many of them came from sort of dictatorial countries or totalitarian countries, are now concerned about what's happening in the United States. They see what's happening in the United States as a reflection of what happened in their home country. They see what's happening now as what they ran away from in their, in their country to come to the United States. That's one of those things too. So going back to the Constitution, I don't think it'll die unless American people let it. But you know, it's it's in, in many ways, obviously, it's one of these things where you're talking about updating it, or or but, it, but it's also one of these things where you have to be very careful about that because again, it's such an important document to the United States, and it's one of these things where it depends on the specific you know articles that you're talking about, which I don't know, but again, I don't I don't think it's ever going to go away and be, and be reconstituted because it's just so important to our nation. So in summary, if you are interested in attending our upcoming events or interested in making a gift to IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please visit IWP.edu. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.